Hello, and welcome back to the EIS Navigator. I'm your host, Brian Moretta. Today's guest is Ilian Elia from EMV Capital. EMV Capital is an EIS manager that has an unusual focus for the space in that they're orientated around hardware and facilitating the use of hardware in technology companies. Ilian also has a background in intellectual property, and we really dig into this and its relevance to EIS investors. This is the last of our recordings that was made before lockdown and the pandemic became common so we don't touch on it at all but what we do discuss is immensely relevant regardless of the time or the conditions of the economy so without any further ado enjoy okay so welcome to the podcast today we are joined by dr Ilian Eliav, who is managing director of emv capital welcome to the podcast Ilian. thank you brian I'd like to start by giving us a bit of background on yourself. Uh, would you like to tell us how you came into EIS and came to be an EIS fund manager? So uh, it was like an eclectic background. I'm trained as an economist uh, and uh, did my thesis on focused on innovation finance and how to fund or more of how not to fund uh, uh, technology intensive companies. But in terms of uh, how I got to this space, I've started several businesses in a range of areas, usually with the industrial or science uh, or heavy analytical element. And I, uh, uh, when it came to EMV Capital, uh, we originally started as a, uh, an incubator practice uh, with an investment element. And uh, gradually we grew into a specialist boutique investment house with a strong focus on uh, uh, energy, industrials, and uh, as of recently, uh, health technologies. So when you were running the incubator, what did that actually mean for the companies? Well, what we quite quickly, first of all, there's a whole kind of alphabet soup of definitions of what's an accelerator and what's an incubator. And there's been many different models tested. In our case, what that meant is that we got quite involved in a hands-on manner with the businesses we worked with in terms of bringing on board the various relationships that we had, corporate relationships and uh, knowledge of networks, but also bringing the know-how and experience of myself and my extended team uh, to help the companies uh, uh, and the entrepreneurs to grow faster. What we tend to find in this space is that there's lots of very good technologies, very good ideas, but it takes a fair amount of work to make those ideas, technologies and offerings investable. It could be that technology is not at the right level. It could be that uh, the business plan is not formulated in the right way, but you know we, we were helping companies in, the, in that. Uh, uh, and what role can you actually play in that? About some of those things are clearly getting technology to the point where it's investable. Sounds like it's something that company management should be preoccupied with, and there's probably not much you as an external investor can do about that. But other things about are probably things that you can do more about. For companies in this space, clearly it's all about teams. If it's not the right team, then you know, no matter how brilliant the technology, uh, you know, it's it probably the proposition is doomed. Having said that, nobody has the full solutions, and uh, building te- technology-based companies often involves um, uh, shortcuts that you only know through experience or by access to the right networks. Uh, For example, so I mean, some good examples are, you know, we were looking at a business that was. Uh, looking to scale up the development of their technology. A lot of what they were trying to do was basically was in-house 
in fact, we could provide, we did provide them with access to some uh, industrial development partners who could really lighten the, the, the capital intensity of what they were doing. Other examples are, you know, companies are often surprised about how much bigger industrial players can do to help them to, to scale up uh, uh, and speed up their development. It's not for free, of course, they have to give up certain aspects. But where we come in tends to be in helping companies to attract uh, and figure out a way of working with, with uh, corporate development partners, where they benefit not only from the um, in vast engineering expertise of these companies, but also with routes to markets and so on and so forth. Uh, and I'll mention one more thing, which, which again tends to be a key focus of ours, which is to really speed up the number and type of pilots, industrial pilots that the companies uh, are in and how those are formulated as a way of supporting the, the, their business plan. I know we've spoken a bit about corporate development partners before. There's clearly some pluses in terms of they bring a lot of capital and a lot of expertise. Do you see any downside or any difficulties in managing that relationship? Well, well the first thing to emphasize is that um, corporate venturing is a fact of life. If you look at the European and the US scene, there's been a vast increase in corporate uh, in, in availability of corporate venturing. But also corporate venturing tends to be exactly in the areas that VCs tend to be scared of, i.e. the areas that we operate in, <laughs> for better or worse. Now, what to understand how the corporates work and what to get the best out of them, you must understand why do we see this jump in corporate venturing. Take a trip down memory lane, the last time we had such a growth in corporate VC was in the uh, around the dot-com boom. At the time, it tended to be a growth primarily driven, something driven by the CFOs. We have to be part of that game. We have to make money. Let's just invest in anything in that space. Let's get something with a dot-com in the name and we can increase our valuation exactly. on the market. Now, over the period since then, which is a 20-year period, uh, there has been a broader shift in corporate development strategies and corporate R&D, namely the by now familiar move towards open innovation. Why open innovation? To put it in a simple term, simple terms, whether it's ABB or GE or GSK or whoever it is, they observed quite accurately that no matter how many engineers they had, there is a multiple of that available elsewhere. They don't have a monopoly on new ideas. The not invented syndrome here is not a positive syndrome, it is a dysfunction. So these corporates <laughs> Had the insight that uh, actually it is a cheaper form of doing R&D by investing small checks in companies in their ecosystem whereby they could learn about new ideas and have a window on technologies than trying to do the, everything themselves in-house. Certainly I think we've seen the pharmaceutical industry in particular is probably the high profile one where they have kind of contracted out, out R&D a lot um, and the way that they generate stuff internally is, is, is much reduced. Absolutely. And it started from there, but what we have observed is that it is really broad now. It, it, it is really across all sectors and across multiple, uh, multiple technology types. So it's not limited to healthcare. You see it in engineering, you see it in automotive, you see it in uh, energy, you see it across the board. And are they consciously modeling themselves on the pharmaceutical industry, you think? I think it started from there, but, uh, but they've all developed their own styles. It also varies not only between industries, but also varies over time. If, if we take an example uh, uh, with the automotive industry, uh, you know, six, seven short years ago, uh, the automotive industry was boring, solid, uh, not much new was happening. Uh, 
you would uh, struggle to recognize the industry right now. The industry is buffeted by changes from all directions, whether it's autonomous vehicles, shared car ownership, the push towards lower carbon emissions. It is a fundamentally different industry. And what they recognize is that by themselves, they can't, they can't swim across. Hence, most, I would say all major automotive OEM groups now have, whether in the West or elsewhere, have an open innovation a program, but also a corporate venturing program. Yeah, it's interesting because there's, there's academic theory out there. I mean, some people have read the stuff by Clay Christensen and these sort of people who have said about the difficulties of generating genuine technology advances within a company or within a, a company structure. With these corporate, com- corporate development arms are investing in these companies, are they specifically saying, this technology is ours now? Are they trying to sort of keep it in? Or are they sort of saying, well, we're just invested in an ecosystem and at some point, if something appears, we like we can pluck it something out of it. Excellent question, and it goes to many of the investors that we speak to, or entrepreneurs. In fact, you know they've heard the scary, the scary stories, and uh, uh, say, no, no, we're never investing or working with a corporate because they will do X, Y, Z. The reality is just like with choosing an investor. You know, there are investors that you can work with, investors that you can't work with. There is investors that. Uh, I don't want to say well-intentioned, everybody, all investors ought to be after an investment return. Otherwise, perhaps you shouldn't bring them on board as investors. But they have different strategies. It's the same with corporates. In general, I differentiate between uh, corporates that are fairly experienced in corporate venturing. They know the rules of the game, so to speak, that it is, uh, while it might be in their short-term interest to push their weight around with a small startup and uh, kind of be, a, uh, be, be quite aggressive, in the long-term it means they have a bad name, but it, 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 it defeats the purpose of, of venturing. So the ones that it's good to work with are the ones that, uh, in our view, that have uh, built up their, their, their corporate venturing and open innovation strategy with that in mind. You might even see a formal separation of the corporate venturing unit from others. Having said that, there is a number of smaller corporates, let's say in the single digit billions in revenues, that don't have the resources to set up a separate corporate venturing arm. It's going to be their M&A or or corporate development side working, but still you can end up getting good deals with them as long as you have your wits about. Presumably they can't devote the sort of support that maybe the larger guys can. Is that the main difference? No, actually it could be positive with them because, I mean, a a single digit billion company is still a single digit billion company, (laughs) not not small by any any terms from a a startup's perspective. But in some ways it could be that the pain the company, the startup is solving is much sharper and that they end up having a direct link to direct line to the uh, CEO of that of that uh, business. So it's it varies. Entrepreneurs have to be pragmatic and business-like about these opportunities and make sure they structure the deals that they uh, feel comfortable with. And I suppose one of the fears that entrepreneurs must have is that if you sign a deal with some big company, that they are in some sense going to be able to monopolize your output or either or the sale options of the company. Are there examples now there of companies funded or have a big corporate value who are actually selling to its competitors or have been purchased by its competitors? Uh, absolutely, and that is an absolute key aspect of any corporate partnership a company comes in. That, uh, uh, at the very least, in our view, there should be no. Uh, um, uh, it would be unwise to have a right of first refusal, for instance, on, on an exit with that business. It really. It's a lemons problem in economic <laughs> in, in economic terms. You know, why would anybody else look at it? You might want to say what a lemon 
Lemons refers from to information asymmetry theory, Joseph Stiglitz and others, the Goran Overprice for that. But basically, the idea is that uh, uh, if the insiders have information on something and if they want purchase that thing or act on it, then why would anybody else do? So if the insider doesn't do something, then them not doing that thing is signaling to others that what they've got is uh, a lemon. Not not a good thing. I think the classic example is cars, cars, exactly. Cars. Yeah. So so that that's 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 one aspect. But I think it's on the other hand where you have a company that is quite capital intensive to grow. Clever use of corporate relationships can uh, uh, can allow them to uh, access the funding and resources needed on on good terms. It could it may well be that you have a platform technology that you've identified several markets then in that case, you know, it might make sense for you to give up one of the 12 markets you can operate in if that gets you the uh, uh, the resources to scale the whole platform. So it's, uh, uh, there is no single rule, I, I would say. So you mentioned capital intensity, which is an interesting issue for a lot of EIS, because a lot of EIS and VCT investors tend to avoid capital intensive areas, but you're very focused on this sort of science intensive, you've done a lot of hardware in the past, um, which are seen as more capital intensive areas. Why does this area attract you? And how do you persuade EIS investors that this is, this is worth going for? Uh, it's a very important and very complex question. The fact is that whereas there is a, um, the UK VC industry has never had it so, so well, so, so good. You've seen recent data, mm-hmm. it's, uh, you know, despite uh, the, uh, Jitters around Brexit, uh, you know, London and the UK once again is uh, uh, kind of uh, leading in, in in Europe and globally. Let's call it a glut of capital would be exaggeration, but there's certainly a boom exactly. in capital available. Well, within that, within that, it is true. It is fair to say that the science-intensive uh, uh, sector still struggles to attract the same levels of funding. And what do you mean by science-intensive? For us, that means not necessarily, it includes hardware, but not only hardware, but basically areas where uh, there is uh, some level of genuine scientific invention uh, or, dare I say, breakthrough. Typically, that means that it is uh, patentable, but also that the uh, scale and scope of knowledge necessary to replicate is not trivial. Everything is replicable fundamentally, but, uh, 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 you know, uh, it helps if it's not something that can be replicated in a few days by somebody in a bedroom. So, 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 is there an example you've come across recently? That I mean, number of examples. One example is uh, uh, we have a, a, a company in the telecoms space that's in, that's in our portfolio. Uh, they're developing uh, antennas for for uh, satellite and five G applications, and the uh, uh, it's a spin out from Edinburgh University. And the scale of knowledge that has gone into this business is, is enormous. You know, it's technology coming out from military radar. The team themselves have many years of uh, experience building uh, silicon chips. There's a know-how you need around doing silicon. So many investors are rightly scared of, of yeah. silicon. But the result is that when we look at the business we invested in, compared to their competitors, you know, we can get to market at a fraction of what some of the U.S. competitors have raised. It's not magic, it's just being clever about how you go about the, the, the sequencing of your investments. I mean, so, yeah, certainly we've heard noises in some areas about how it's easier than it used to be, and then every technology improves over time, and that maybe can alleviate capital intensity, but it still seems to me that this is quite a capital intensive area, or, or can you actually really make a big difference to that capital requirement? I, I, th- I think 
the fact that you have the science intensity and some element of, of hardware, it makes it into a slightly different uh, asset class compared to pure software businesses following a SaaS model. Yeah. And that's a fact. And because it's a different asset class, it behaves differently. Within SaaS types of businesses, look, you know, it is a little bit of a spray and pray, you know, because there's a fundamental unpredictableness if you're coming in at the air stage about which one's going to be the winner. And, you know, your strategy there will, may well be collecting a bunch of these, 5, 10, 20, 40 of those, and hoping one of them is going to be a unicorn. Fine. That may well be the strategy you're doing. I'm not going to recommend it here. Way because <laughs> I'm sure I'll find somebody who will in time. <laughs> but in our space, it behaves in a different way. Perhaps the scale-up potential is not as high. Perhaps it is much more difficult to get to unicorn types of companies. Although, of course, we've got examples such as Graphcore in the UK. You've got ARM, of mm -hmm. course, a yes. great example, and many others. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, the downside protection is higher because you've got real assets, real IP that is actually useful to somebody. And perhaps you've got, in fact, you've got a more de-risked uh, way, way of uh, growing these businesses with, with industrial partnerships we talk about. So it just behaves in a different way from a pure SaaS uh, business. Yeah, and certainly with something, if we look at the, the standard model now and everything is lean startup, is, is the sort of the base model that is used in technology. Uh, getting to that minimum viable product, getting a product market fit. And particularly in software, that tends to require frequent iteration. Now, it seems to me the challenge in this sort of area is that getting that product, get to market, iterate, change, that is a much more challenging thing to do. The Lean Startup approach has lots of useful elements for, for our space. I don't think it's applicable entirely because mm -hmm. fundamentally Lean Startup is, is about B2C uh, products. Yeah. Uh, but there's lots of useful elements. So the cost of developing hardware has plummeted massively. Part of it is driven by improved computational power, which means that you can simulate a lot of things, kind of lab on a chip sort of thing, um, mm -hmm. um, compared to before, which means that you can get to prototypes much faster. And that goes every, from all the way from uh, engine design, combustion engines and so on, through to simulating batteries, through to simulating chip design, uh, yeah. But Certainly, also... I had friends in the start 20 years ago. Yes. Who, yeah. It was a case of they designed it, sent it across to Taiwan, they had to get the production, get it back, then they see if it worked, and then there was, there was that. And, that, and that, that was quite a slow process. And that's, that's changed. So it's still, it's still more expensive than iterating on software, but it's fundamentally different compared to uh, 10 years ago, let's say. Another element, of course, is 3D printing, because with 3D printing, you've got uh, rapid prototyping, whether it's fully commercial type, you know, it's still an open question. Having said that, there's so much development in, in metal-based uh, 3D printing that even in that space, you know... You, you, I mean, it's close. that's closer to the sort of the, the MVP that they're doing that rather than the actual final production version. And I would say also uh, on the back of, uh, in particular, metal-based uh, uh, additive manufacturing that you can start developing products that were physically impossible years ago in terms of hollow metallic structures and so on and so forth. But in my view, Lean Startup is not applicable in its full form in the enterprise space. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's fine and well doing B2C uh, uh, sort of uh, A-B testing for uh, mm -hmm. software products that, that end up being used by consumers because you've got that. But if you're in the enterprise space, even as a software business, you can't do that because to get the specs of what you need, <laughs> you, need you, you still need the whole corporate business. I, th I think it depends a bit more on the product. I mean, yeah. certainly there are areas of enterprise software. Yeah, yeah. You could argue it's Slack. Yeah. is an enterprise software. Yeah. 
but can still go through that. Yeah, but for instance, if you're building a uh, a, uh, a smart grid operational system for, for 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 the national electricity operator, I'm not sure they would take to the A/B testing quite well. <laughs> it would work definitely because the half the country going dark, the other one having light is the ultimate in A/B testing. But uh, yes, well, you have something where fault toleration is is yes. low, then um, yeah, it's not going to work quite as well. One thing that always interests me in these areas is how hard is it to do diligence on these sort of companies, particularly where you have technology that is complex and not very visible in a lot of ways. Our approach is that, uh, uh, you know, on the one hand, we are a team of geeks, you know, so <laughs> and anything and everything, and there's lots of experience and things that we've done and so on and so forth. So we already have a good sense of what and where to look for. But fundamentally, if we're asking our investors, whether it's investors in the fund or direct investors in our direct deals, uh, uh, typically it's, uh, you know, it's not a case of uh, 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 trust us, we're smart. We're looking for validations. We do that through in two ways. We do it through our network of industry experts, people that have deep domain expertise mm -hmm. in the areas where we're comfortable. Uh, but in particular, this is where our corporate networks come in, uh, come in quite handy, that uh, we are able to to some extent, get validation from, from, from our corporate partners. And are these people where they just sort of say, yes, in principle, this works, or they're actually, they, they get a little bit of silicon or a little bit of whatever the company's produced and say, right, we're going to just test this? We decide on a case-by-case -case basis. In some, in some cases, you know, we, really, it, it, it is such a fundamental nature that we need to see this product in, in, the, in, in, uh, in pilot trials uh, and start getting some protocols mm -hmm. out of that to make the judgment. Uh, in other cases, it's talking to key opinion leaders uh, that uh, uh, will know more than a corporate because, you know, especially in life sciences, you know, that, that tends to be the, the, the test point. And I guess in a lot of life sciences, you always have that uncertainty about will it get through whatever medical yes. trials are required for licensing or whatever, yes. and whether you get that approval, that's, that's a risk always in the background. You mentioned earlier about intellectual property. And your background, although you skipped over it, <laughs> so, um, part of your history is working in the area of intellectual property. And I thought it might be interesting to discuss that a little bit, particularly as you, you, you're something of an expert in the area, I think. Maybe we'll talk about a couple of basic questions uh, about what should investors be concerned about with regards to intellectual property when looking at a company. Great question and so many uh, answers. So IP is one of those. We have time. <laughs> exactly, it's one of those funny areas that it, it, it has this mystic. It's 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 almost like you know, uh, there's two types of professionals uh, consumers are afraid to argue with. One is uh, doctor, your doctor about the bills. One is your doctor, and the other one is your lawyer. And for both, there's this sort of mystic. I suppose the third one is a judge. <laughs> Leave that aside. Yeah. When I started working in the IP area, and what you're referring to is, you know, a previous company I built, uh, Cambridge IP, where we built a patent analytics platform and a kind of a strategic strategy consulting offering around that. When I came to that area, I looked at it. I should say I'm not a lawyer. In fact, I failed law one in the university, <laughs> so, so I'm kind of, uh, that disqualifies me from any legal advice uh, forever. But when I came to this area. I approach patents with, as, as an economist and, and kind of information scientist because here is this wonderful thing which is source of so much information. It describes the technology, it tells you who owns it, it tells you what it does, it tells you why it's useful in the world, it tells you who made it, it tells you who owns it, and guess what? Somebody paid by the state validated that it's more or less okay, and then it's available for everybody to see. And there's 
hundreds, there's tens of millions, and in fact, more than 100 million of those available globally, electronically. Wow. I wish I had that in terms of market research. <laughs> so the approach we took to, to, to there was that uh, uh, the patent profession bro broadly is uh, uh, working in the uh, uh, Stone Age. That's changed a bit, but not much. And again, not looking at the legal advice of it, but the use of information and basically saying, look, shouldn't the businesses in our areas of work, energy, industrials, healthcare, which was incidentally the focus I had with the previous business, shouldn't they be using this vast information to understand where the hell they are in the world? Who else is doing that? Who else is working on it? Who should we poach from a corporate? What are our competitors doing that we don't know? So we were somewhat successful in, in, in doing and developing that. Through that process, I guess I built a pragmatic approach to IP that I have brought into EMV Capital as a core part of our process. As an as a investor, IP due diligence is a core part, but we don't obsess about it. So it's really a core part of what mm -hmm. we do, and because we know how to do quite a bit of it, 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 it kind of it helps. It'd be easy to get carried away, though. <laughs> it is, indeed, and I should finish my, the answer to my question. Uh, so... Uh, the way we look at it is that it's an important part of your strategy, not the only part of your strategy. It is unlikely in the life cycle of, of a company, unless you become incredibly successful, that you will actually have the resources to sue somebody for infringement. But having a strong and well thought through patent protection is important for your investors. It shows them, first of all, that if you are successful, those who do acquire you, the G's and Siemens's and ABB's of this world, you might not care about that, but they will, because they're big enough for somebody to sue. So they want to make sure they have absolutely rock-solid protection for what it is that they're buying. So that's a key point. You're investing a little bit today in order for what you're going to have tomorrow. There is a second element that we tend to take a well-thought-through IP strategy as a proxy of the thinking of the entrepreneurs. It takes a certain level of sophistication and patience and logical consistency for a technology-focused business to also have a well-thought-through patent strategy. It doesn't mean they have to have spent hundreds of thousands of pounds on useless patents. It's more, what is your IP strategy and how do you pr propose to, to, to implement it? And finally, and this is the trick question, for most people, IP is limited to patents. The fact is that it's not. You can build a very strong business, potentially without patents or selective patents around your chain, primarily relying on, on, on trade secrets or know-how or a uh, clever use of database, or uh, uh, other contractual li linkages with, with, with the customers. All of this is IP. So we're looking for above, uh, way above average thinking about, okay, you're going to get all this money to develop your technology and to commercialize it. How are you going to protect it from your competitors with, with the tools that maybe not nature, but governments have, have given you? Yeah, I mean, some of the most famous example of the, the non-patent strategies, Coca-Cola. Obviously, have this secret formula that they've never disclosed, and only two people within the company know it. And that is the classic example of a trade secret. Now, 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 a great example. But the other, the second part of that example is that and, you know it's 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 kind of urban legend that, that could could be true. Is that one of the employees? Because you know, the next question, okay, but if somebody pays enough money, to some if Pepsi pays enough money to Coca-Cola, would somebody get out and uh, uh, and go for it? And you know, what tends to happen in, this, in these cases is that if somebody takes a bunch of trade secrets out with them, a hard disk or whatever it is, mm -hmm. tries to go to the competitor, most, more like, mostly in, in the developed markets, most likely that competitor will have their hairs on end and will say, no, <laughs> we <never laughs> met you, we don't want to meet you, because their business can be destroyed by contaminating their own IP with that. Good case, mm -hmm. 
is the whole is the whole uh, there's a bunch of litigation cases uh, in uh, in the US around autonomous vehicles mm -hmm. you know, with the, yes. Google and others. Yeah. So it's not it's not that easy. Equally, you know, we have cases such as Tesla giving away to the world their whole patent portfolio for everybody to develop. Okay, did that mean that lots of EV, EVs came out of that? Maybe not. Perhaps what happened is that they put their IP out in the public domain, thus stopping other competitors from patenting stuff. So there's many, many different ways of, of developing an IP strategy. But as you said, it is really easy to get carried away. It's <laughs> we're talking about IP. Can you give, can you, can you give any, any idea or examples of perhaps when different strategies might be appropriate? So when should someone think about patents? When should someone perhaps look for trade secret, perhaps a bit, bit more? Very difficult question. What I will say is kind of pitfalls is, for instance, one of the pitfalls is, well, we're building a software business, therefore there are no patents. Uh, it is true that in Europe it is, more it is more difficult to file and get patents under the European system versus the American system. But what companies should remember is that we work in a global market and their competitors tend to be, the biggest competitors tend to be US-based and many of their potential corporate buyers tend also to be US-based. Uh, so if you can't file for a patent in, in Europe, where it's more difficult, you sure as hell can file for a patent in the US. So I think it's, it's an element of look around your competitors, look at the industry, look at your potential buyers, what's their patenting strategy, learn something from that, and then follow that, follow that strategy. I would say in, in chemicals, uh, in the chemicals industry, it tends to be a much more fine balance between publishing the patents and trade secrets of how it is that you prepare. So kind of a mix and match approach can be, yeah. can be useful. So, so basically it's the process that they patent, yeah. not necessarily the, the, the end chemical, for instance. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's again, it's, it's on a case-by-case -case basis. Yeah. yeah, I know it's hard to generalize. Have you seen cases where the company has the wrong strategy? And, and perhaps, and, and can you actually do anything? Is this a case of if you see a company like it's like, well, okay, they've got it wrong, we walk away? Or could you see it saying, well, actually, we can help this company make it better? Well, I guess it's, it's, two, it's the two extremes that, that, are, that, that scare us. One extreme is everything is so predicated on the great patents that we have and, uh, and we're going to become a patent troll and we'll sue all the great and good of the industry. And uh, <laughs> you know, even if our product doesn't work, which it doesn't, hey, guess what? Invest in us, give us lots of money and we'll go sue the hell out of everyone. So in which case, okay, we'll go. Uh, feel free to go to Texas and uh, <laughs> do it yourself uh, or find other investors that will back you for that. So in, in that case, look, it's, it's not really, you're not really developing a company. You know, you're hiding behind a patent troll. The other extreme tends to be we never bothered to think through uh, uh, the IP strategy because I think it's a waste of time. And here we are, we've now spent all these millions and the technology is already out there and it's potentially up in the public domain, it is contaminated. So actually now it's very difficult for you to protect whether through patents or other terms, what it is that you already have. Trickier one is in fast moving industries. Let's say, let's say around various SaaS models where really uh, speed to market is key and ability to acquire market share is key. You know, by the time the patent is published, probably you've already moved on to the next iteration of the uh, of the product. So again, there it's kind of you have to look at it on a case-by-case -case basis. Typically, there's always something really core, really unique to the business that that is patentable, but you know, put your efforts elsewhere. You mentioned a minute ago about patent trolls, and I think there's a lot of chat that the patent system is in some sense broken or at very least not suitable for purpose. Yeah, yeah. Is that something you agree with? And if, if so, what would you change about it? Yes, I agree. But 
And there's two buts. One is it's a fact of life. So as, as a private citizen, you know, we can think whatever we want to think about the patent system, but as a, a business person looking after other people's money, you have to take into account what the facts on the ground are. Having said that, in particular in software and some other areas, an open innovation platform is a, 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 a open innovation approach is a, a, open source approach is potentially uh, doable. Uh, but also there's ways of using uh, patents in a, I don't want to say altruistic, but in a more open way. For instance, uh, working with uh, uh, patent pools or, or uh, if, if, it, if you are first to market in terms of inventing or developing a new standard for a telecoms protocol or something else, you could actually be the catalyst of a broader collaboration and you can build a patent pool with you know, friendly access terms for others, you know, what's known as front terms. So, so again, you know, there's many ways of using the patent system for good to accelerate technology and attract development. Uh, on the broader aspect of is it broken? Yeah, I mean, there's lots of questions. You know, if you have products, in particular in software, that their economic life is, you know, three, four, five, six years, and it takes you three years to get a patent, then you get 20 years of, of patent life, but, you know, it's, it's useless. Or if you're able to click, uh, if you're able to patent a single-click method for shopping, <laughs> or, or, or in some other cases, uh, in medical devices, really trivial stuff, is that doing society any good? Uh, yeah, these are these are valid questions. Uh, there's a lot of, I would say, there's a lot of. Speaking as an economist, there's a lot of social dead weight carried by the patent system. Uh, but a bit like what Churchill said, you know, democracy is the worst uh, system. But uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, 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 else, you know, what's the alternative? Well, I, you, you wouldn't like to throw out the whole system. Do you think we could tinker with it? Do you think we can make some changes? Are there easy changes? Would there have to be hard changes, do you think? I mean, again, it's, it's a whole school of, of thought out that people, you know, should we have different patent lengths for different technologies and so on and so forth. Um, I, I think probably the main changes ought to be, talking, talking within Europe, is in terms of uh, 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 ease of access to SMEs to the system. It is still quite expensive to access the system and, and use the system. Uh, there's a there's a knowledge and training uh, element uh, to it, uh, and then of course there's the protection aspect. How how do courts uh, how do courts uh, uh, work? The U.S. is a totally different case. I mean, this is just it's so incredibly expensive. Uh, there, the way it works there, simply because that's the way the U.S. system is set up, not only for patents but elsewhere, is that you know it is easy to get a right, but it's in the courts that it's challenged mm -hmm. and proven to be right or not. So it's a difficult, very very difficult question. I think um, uh, you had earlier a question around China. That's a more interesting case in the sense that China, I think, is operating at two speed or two levels economy. On one side, kind of on the lower end, is all the copycat workshops and mm -hmm. you know the rest of it. So yeah, that's there, and probably it is difficult to go to a Chinese court and try to uh, uh, protect your rights. My impression so, is a lot of that is internationalizing. Yeah. To I mean, Vietnam is taking over that. Indonesia is taking over a little bit. Exactly, as well. exactly. And what you're seeing in and there's a great book by uh, Professor Hyun Chang, uh, "Kicking Away the Ladder." The professor in Cambridge focused on uh, developmental economics, and uh, he's starting off his analysis by looking at the industrialization of Korea. Korea, of course, now it's an OECD economy and has some of the big industrial giants. Yet in the 1960s, I believe their GDP per capita was uh, that of uh, a number of poor countries in, in, in Africa. How can you yeah. go from that to, to that? And it is the Asian miracle. In, 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 exactly. And a big, a big part of the Asian miracle is uh, outright IP theft. <laughs> As has been the case, if you look at 19th century literature, there is a lot of uh, anger 
uh, and upset in the UK about uh, the US uh, stealing uh, British IP. And uh, <laughs> you know, so so there's this element of catch-up industrialization that uh, yes, this kind uh, of history echoing, yeah. rhyme, yes. rhyming again. Yeah. yeah. So China's just doing what everybody else did hundred years ago, but. Yeah, as you say, it's, it's always tempting to pull up the ladder afterwards. Exactly. We'll, we'll see if that changes in the near future. Uh, I'm not sure I'm entirely optimistic, but we'll, we'll see what happens. I'd like to move on to our standard questions. So everybody we ask a similar set of questions to just learn a bit more about you and, yes. and a bit more about what's going on. So what was the most recent investment that you made, mm-hmm. at least the most recent one you can talk about? Sure. We talk, I'll talk about the program last year. Just I honestly, I've lost track which was which was the, the most recent one. Last year, we had our busiest year uh, so far. We made five new uh, uh, investments, uh, as in five into five new portfolio companies. And that includes uh, Sofant, which I alluded to earlier, which is a, uh, a company developing uh, new communications kit and antennas for uh, low orbit satellites. It's all the SpaceX uh, stuff of kind of launching uh, low orbit satellites and creating almost an alternative network to, to, to terrestrial communications. Uh, another one is uh, in the US, actually, Vortex Biosciences, who are developing, um, who are on the route to developing a liquid, uh, uh, liquid biopsy platform. In other words, you know, using your blood to detect whether you have certain types of cancers. That is in the long term. But in the short term, they're doing absolutely amazing stuff with uh, uh, capturing, detecting, circulating tumor cells. Uh, Wonder Health, who are using artificial intelligence for predicting certain uh, critical disease events and communicating those to the uh, to the doctors. Sage Tech Medical, who are developing a, a circular economy model for capturing and recycling anesthetic gases from hospitals. So, something that uh, you know, when I first saw it, how, how how on earth can you make money out of that? And then it turns out that within the broader move about decarbonizing. Uh, many sectors, including medical, and in particular for, for, for anesthetic gases, they have an above average, I believe it's eight times the greenhouse gas impact uh, uh, compared to CO2. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so, so it makes you think twice before you, yeah. before you fall sick and get operated. You know, yeah. It's bad for the environment. Stay healthy. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I have a niece as a friend, so don't want her to put out of a job. Though. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, but each of those, I think, what we tend to see with the businesses that we work with is that um, we have to recognize we're not in Silicon Valley. We don't have a billion fund. We cannot fund massive bets. Therefore, we tend to find companies that are very strong uh, or very provide a very interesting play in a particular niche that is, that, is, that is interesting, big enough to make money from, but all the giants are not plowing into it yet. And their technology can then be transferred into other sectors. And each of the examples I mentioned has, has uh, uh, some, some elements of that strategy. Um, I think you might have touched on this one earlier already, actually. Which is the most important, market, product, or management? Well, you need all three. <laughs> <laughs> Which one dominates? I would say market and product are the filters, and the decision point is management. Okay. And why management? Who's going to execute? Okay. So, can you perhaps tell me something about a time where you made a mistake or something went wrong, and what did you learn from that process? Yeah, yeah. One is um, getting really excited. Uh, needless to say to, you, to your viewers, <laughs> I would never make those mistakes again. There are no, there are no mistakes left to make. So, so now and it's smooth sailing, absolutely perfect. That's it. Um, I, guess, I guess early in my career, it was really falling in love with the technology and the product to an extent with the, with the team. And um, 
being cognizant of the of the risks, uh, but not pushing hard enough prior to do, making the investment to make sure that the business plan is fully thought through. Mm-hmm. And the consequence of the mistake is that, uh, as often happens, the company ran out of cash sometime down the line, and we were not ready. We didn't have the pre-agreement to you know what is plan B, what happens in that situation. So that was, in terms of personal learning, it is not being in a hurry. You know, this, there's always deals that are about to close and, you know, the, the company or their corporate funders will put pressure on you to come in or otherwise you miss the, the opportunity. There's always time. You need to be comfortable that you and the management have a meeting of minds about what it is we're getting into, what it is doesn't work, and always what is, what is plan B. One of the investors I work with closely, he, he often likes to talk about uh, uh, driving against a brick wall at high speed. <laughs> and 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 it's it often fun and it's 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 easy to happen because success is always around the corner. And if we slow down the cash burn now, we're going to miss this client and we're going to miss that client. And it's a very difficult. I mean, I can say it. Surely you wouldn't drive at high speed against against a, a brick wall. But in reality, the choices are hard. You know, you might have to cut back massively the team, which indeed might might result in you not closing that next deal. But you have to make those this. Make the hard decisions uh, earlier. I think I th- should I give you another example. That's okay. Um, was that a big enough mistake to talk about? That's <laughs> that was a big. My enough biggest mistake. weakness is not working hard enough. <laughs> <laughs> or working too hard. Are you a book, a TV, or a film person? I'm a voracious consumer of content. Uh, I'm a bibliophile. Uh, I, I read. I read a lot, okay. both fiction and non-fiction. Do you want to give us a give, give a book? So whoever's listening to the podcast, what should they get for the next train journey? What should I be reading on the train home to Edinburgh? So at the moment, uh, my son is going through the whole brutal English 11 plus exam sort of experience. <laughs> uh, and I've started reading up on, 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 the, on the history of public, uh, of public schools and uh, the various extremely positive things about it, but also the how that relates into the whole uh, different aspects of society and of the economy and training up and so on and so forth. I come, in terms of economics, I come from an evolutionary economics and institutional economics aspect where things you do now end up becoming an institution a little bit later on. And then by the time it gets there, well, we've been doing this because we've always been doing it this way. And, and even though it is dysfunctional, it's difficult to change it because the costs of changing it outweigh the short-term benefits of doing so even in the long term. It might be useful to do so. And, and it's interesting to see these dynamics kind of in, 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 the, in the schooling system. You know, you can't do without it, but at the same time, you can see kind of <laughs> negative aspects of it. Another book I'm reading in parallel is around uh, uh, AI. So, there's so what was that book? Sorry, what, you, you said it was a topic. What was the book? Uh, oof, I'm bad at names. I'll send it to you afterwards. Okay, uh, we'll, we'll put it in the show notes. Posh Boys and uh, Posh Boys and something. I'll, as we speak, I'll look it up in Amazon. Okay, okay we'll put it in the show notes. And... and um, let me tell you the other one, which is, okay. which is more important. It's, it's, it's by Martin Ford, uh, who has written some, some books on, on artificial intelligence. And this particular book is a collection of interviews with all the big, uh, uh, big minds in, in, uh, in, in AI development, mm-hmm. asking about big questions of how soon are we going to go to uh, get to uh, AGM and, uh, and the different uh, problems and the ethical problems with AI. And to me, this speaks to two issues that I'm working on actively. One is that uh, looking at impact investment, I believe that we need to expand the concept of impact investment by looking at responsible AI investment, which Google, DeepMind, big corporates are engaging with with ethical boards. As investors, we haven't taken it on board yet. 
And the second thing that amazes me is that the majority of those people are educated in the UK. They're working in Canada, they're working in, in California, but the majority of, the, of them come out of the, of the, of the 1980s and 1990s computer, computer departments in the UK, which goes back to show that we are definitely in the right place. Okay. And finally, um, what do you wish you knew, knew now that you didn't know when you started? Or what do you know now that you wish you'd known when you started your career? I think I think it's the important the importance of 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 planning and 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 being being consistent. There is so many exciting things that you can do, uh, and I should say I've never worked in a corporate. It's always been kind of my own things that I've done. So there's so many exciting things that you do, but uh, time is the enemy, and uh, uh, those things take those things take time. So being more careful in planning before launching a new project. Take that weekend away. Go for a walk in the woods. Okay, <laughs> very good advice. Um, on that thought, we shall uh, stop there. Thank you very much, Ilian, for your time, uh, and I hope everybody found that really interesting. So we really hope you enjoyed this latest episode of the EIS Navigator. If you want any more information about Ilian and EMB Capital, you can find their website embcapital.com. The show notes for this episode, as usual, will be available at harmonico.com slash podcast. If you're enjoying this, then please leave us a review, preferably with lots and lots of stars, on iTunes. If you want any more information about what we're doing, you can send us an email at inquiries at harmonico.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on all good platforms, iTunes, Spotify, etc. Otherwise, thank you very much for listening and goodbye.